Welcome back to another episode of The Jacob Johnston Show. Talking about what liars and hypocrites the Democrats are becomes too much of an easy topic. It is basically the low-hanging fruit because there are so many examples. They engage in lies and hypocrisy almost on a daily basis. Now, you could probably make the same claim about the rhino class and the Republican Party for sure, because they're basically Democrats pretending to be Republican. Now, how many times have you heard Bernie Sanders go out there and say, we need a single-payer health care system? And he always goes through and tries to point to how other developed democracy, developed nations have single-payer health care systems. Now, of course, he doesn't want to go off and analyze the results of those systems compared to the United States. Those single-payer health care systems from countries that he likes to point out also include death as a positive health care outcome. So you kind of need to you know, adjust a little bit if you don't agree death as a positive health care outcome. But the argument that he uses that other developed countries, all other major developed countries, is supposed to make it seem like his idea is more credible. Now, if we were going off and taking a look at something and we decided, yes, it has better outcomes than the United States, then if we were to implement best practices, we would go through and do that. But if on the flip side, the results are worse than the United States, we shouldn't. But the Democrats don't care about whether or not the outcome is good. They only care about their own power. Now, let's take another example here. There is another thing that almost all developed countries do. There is another thing that almost all developed democracies in the world do. But the Democrats, if you were to go off and mention that, would just dismiss it and say, well, just because they do it doesn't mean we should do it here. And let me give you that example. Election security, election integrity law. Yes, it turns out that the United States is the exception, the outlier, rather than the rule. If you were to take a look at all other developed countries, they have more voter integrity, more voter security, election security, than the United States. And I find this interesting because I found an article here from the Political Insider. America the outlier, voter photo IDs are the rules in Europe and elsewhere. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, Sanders, Sanders. I thought you said if all other developed countries, especially those over in Europe, did something, that it meant we should do something. Are you a hypocrite? They engage in voter ID. Shouldn't we? Under your own rules, Sanders, under your own argument, you should be for voter ID in our election, along with maybe some other election security measures. Unless, of course, you're a complete and total hypocrite and your argument you don't even believe in. Now, let me make this clear. I have never gone out and advocated for a particular policy on the basis that that's what all the other countries do. So me going off and saying, hey, I don't think we should do this, even though other countries are doing it, is not hypocritical. But me going off and saying, you know, other countries are doing this, and it seems like a good idea. You know, I wonder if something like that would work here in the United States, or maybe we should implement that. That's not the same as going off and saying we should do something only because another country does it. It's me trying to take a look at what other countries are, what would be considered best practices, and implementing that. But I never go off and make an argument that we should do this because other countries are doing it. So hopefully you understand the difference there. So what type of election integrity laws do all the other major developed countries have? 
After all, Bernie, this is the type of argument that you make. Other countries do it. Most other developed nations do it. So let's take a look at what they are doing here and then compare it to the United States because it is interesting to find out that the world's currently oldest democracy, the shining beacon of freedom and democracy, the one who brought democracy to most of the world in the modern era, has the weakest election integrity laws of all the countries. All right, so from the piece, The Political Insider, entitled America the Outlier, Voter Photo IDs are the Rules in Europe and Elsewhere. And it goes on to read, and I'll just provide you uh, a few highlights here. Of 47 nations surveyed in Europe, a place where, on other matters, American progressives often look to with envy, all but one country requires a government-issued photo photo voter ID to vote. Wait, 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 wait. Did you hear that, Sanders? Did you hear that? 46 out of the 47 nations in Europe that you keep referencing for your single-payer health care, they, requ- they, they require a photo ID to vote. Under your argument, because they do it, we should do it too. Now, I think we should do it because it just makes common sense. You know, it's just good policy for election integrity. People just being able to show up at the voting booth without any identification, being able to claim that they are anybody that they want to claim. Anybody, you could have a group buying voter roll, claimants for marketing, and instead disseminate it among its members, target the people on that list that haven't voted in the last couple of elections or who don't vote regularly that you have identified are unlikely to vote. And then you could just walk in, claim to be them, and vote without ever having to show ID. That is insane. But 46 out of 47 nations over in Europe require a, vo- a photo ID to vote. But you never hear the Democrats going out there making the argument that because all other developed nations do it, we should do it too, even though this is probably the one issue where that argument would make sense. Okay. So it goes on to say that when these voter ID laws were put into place during the debate, we often heard the same argument that voter ID laws targets low-income ethnic minorities and younger people. Now, it's interesting because if you take a look at this, you need a photo ID in order to buy alcohol. You need it to get into certain private business functions you know, sporting events, maybe, definitely to any government-sponsored events where a senator, a representative, or the president of the United States may be attending in person. So why is it that we need it for something as simple as driving, but not for voting? Something as simple as buying beer, but not for voting? And how is it that voter ID laws targets minorities? Are they out there saying that most minorities don't drive vehicles, that they just can't figure out how to drive, how to pass a driving test, and how to be able to get out there and engage in regular commerce? Take a look at all the things. They, you know, you can't drive without a photo ID. You can't rent a vehicle without a photo ID. You can't do a whole bunch of things without a photo ID. So are minorities being excluded from all of those things as well? The Democrats have no answer. They just somehow think or claim that requiring a photo ID to vote is somehow racist. They use that because they have no argument against photo IDs to vote. All right. 
let's go on and go on this. And of course, we know that when they don't have an argument to support their positions, they just yell out racism as if they have Tourette. All right, the article continues. 74% of European countries entirely ban absentee voting. Hmm. Again, Sanders, Sanders, here it is. Here's an example where all the countries you like to reference as doing something to support what you want to do, they're doing something that Republicans are proposing. Your own voting logic or your own arguments, the logic of which would mean that Bernie Sanders should vote vote for and support photo IDs and banning absentee ballots in our elections. Okay. Anyways, this goes on to continue. Only the UK, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia currently do not require IDs. All right, they're the outliers. However, there's a little bit of a caveat to that. For instance, while Japan doesn't require a photo ID to vote, Japan provides each voter with a ticket that bears a unique barcode. So I guess technically they do require an ID. The ID is the ballot that they are issued with the unique barcode, government-issued secure barcode. You don't need an ID if they've already identified who you are and provide you a unique barcode in order to vote. Okay, New Zealand technically requires an ID with a unique code. However, you know if you don't have it, you'll still be allowed to vote after they go through and verify your identity through the public record. Okay. So there's two countries that don't necessarily require ID, but they provide unique barcodes to each person's ballot or ticket. Okay. Australia has by far the loosest rules. And while a photo ID is required to register to vote, they are not required on when you actually go in to vote. So again, here's a situation where the outlier of not having an ID, but in order to get onto the voting when you register to vote, you got to show identification, a photo identification to verify that it is you. That way, you know, when you show up to the polls, you don't need uh, the ID because you've already been identified. Your identity has already been confirmed in order to get onto the voter rolls to begin with. Here in the United States, you don't even need the ID or show proof of who you are to get onto the voter rolls. And then you don't need to show any identification and most of the country to vote. So they have no idea who's actually registering to vote and who is actually casting the vote. Now, there are a few exceptions to developed countries, general avoidance of emergency voting measures during the pandemic. So even during the pandemic, there, America was the only country, the United States was really the only country that changed its voting rules and and such as a result of the pandemic. Most other countries kept their current voting laws in place. The Democrats used the pandemic as an excuse to basically throw all election laws out the window and make it up as they go, to just have Facebook rewrite the rules of the election, voiding the state legislature's laws. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So once we move out of Europe, what about over here on our side of the where there are some at least some quasi-democracy, at the very least. Colombia and Mexico have more secure elections, have more election integrity than the United States. Now, this is where it really starts to piss me off. Mexico? Mexico. 
has more election integrity and security than the United States. Take a look at this. Colombia and Mexico each require a biometric ID to cast a ballot. So it's not just a photo ID. It's biometric ID. You know, biometrics, you know, you could use that as, you know, your fingerprint, you know, a biometric eye scan, you know, however, whatever biometrics that they use. But they go beyond a photo ID and require uh, identification through biometric in order to vote. Man, you know, it's, so it's amazing. I mean, even when we go off and we took, take a look at how elections are conducted in Afghanistan, we have provided for and implemented more security more election integrity in Afghanistan's election than we do in the elections here in the United States. And these other countries requiring ID, banning mail-in ballots, it's not like these are new developments. Those bans on those integrity laws have been on the books for decades. On the mainland, France banned mail-in voting back in 1975. And what do we see? As a result, they have low election fraud. They have not you know, they have next to no election fraud. Here in the United States, the Democrats engage in elections and election rules designed to make catching fraud almost impossible because you can't figure out who's actually casting the ballot. So they've institutionalized the fraud, as Mark Levin pointed out, that they make fraud a part of the system and they make it almost impossible to be able to detect. But despite the record of Europe and the vast majority of the rest of the developed world, Congressional Democrats are pushing to remove identification requirements from voting. So yes, the rest of the developed countries in the world, they engage in voter integrity laws, voter ID, even going as far in some places as biometric screening. And they also put into place detection measures so that you can detect election fraud. Now, while the Democrats here in the United States are trying to eliminate election integrity law, trying to eliminate any attempts to require anybody to actually show that they are who they say they are when they show up to vote, and basically trying to make it almost impossible to detect and expose fraud in the election. And you have to wonder why. After all, they make these arguments about what all the other developed nations are doing when it comes to other things, such as single-payer health care. So what's going on here? Well, it's very simple. The Democrats can't get elected in a free and fair election. They become too radical, too insane. The American people won't vote for them. So they have to work at eliminating any election security whatsoever so that they can cheat, lie, and steal election in order to hold on to and maintain power. And the level of fraud that they've had to engage in has gotten so absurd that they are definitely going all in on open borders. I'm bringing in as many illegal immigrants as I can, trying to place them in all the areas of the country that won't vote for the Democrats, and then they're going to try and ram through an amnesty bill with voting rights. After all, if the voters won't vote for you and you can't engage in any more cheating, then the only way to hold on to power is to replace the voters. And we'll get to more of that later on. Okay, enough about the elections and exposing the hypocrisy of the Democrats' arguments about, hey, if other countries are doing it, maybe we should do it too. And let's get into something that may be a little bit on the scary side. So there is more news coming out of China about another virus that has made the jump from animal to human. Who's up for another pandemic is the headline of the article from Hot Air. 
And I'm just going to read just a brief, you know, couple of sentences from this article. A man in eastern China has contracted what might be the world's first human case of H1ON3, strain of bird flu. But the risk of large-scale spread is low, the government said on Tuesday. Boy, remember when they were first reporting about the first case of COVID-19 and how the spread to humans is very low? Remember this, the, what was it, the WHO's t- infamous tweet that didn't age very well? There is no evidence of human-to-human transmission. Yeah, this gives me confidence. Now, the bird flu has crossed over before, and not just in China. So we'll go through and we'll put that little bit of a caveat there. But here it is. We could be looking at the start of another pandemic if this isn't contained, if this is anywhere near as contagious as COVID-19. Yay, we're barely getting out of one pandemic, and it seems like another pandemic could be on the horizon. And once again, it is China. Now, if China causes another pandemic, another global pandemic, then all countries should immediately stop doing business with China. We should immediately stop all trade, pull out all manufacturing, and basically make China the outcast of the world. Give them the North Korea treatment if they, if they result in another pandemic, especially this soon. I mean, why is it? Is this another situation where it's a virus manipulated in the Wuhan lab of biology in China? Why are they going off and engaging in the genetic manipulation of viruses? Now, look, I get the study of virus. I get the idea of going through, taking a look at viruses and trying to study their makeup, how they act, how they work, you know, how to maybe find some cures for them. But the genetic manipulation of these viruses, I don't get the reasoning for it. I don't see any legitimate reason for it. It could only be to explore them as a potential biological weapon. And if the United States has any part in funding this research, it should stop immediately. And here we are, just getting over the last pandemic, COVID 19. And yet China has still have yet been held accountable for it. They haven't paid any price for it. They unleashed a global pandemic. Millions of people have died, and there's no accountability whatsoever. In fact, not only is there no accountability, but the left has done everything and anything that they can think of to try and cover up, hide, and protect China's culpability in all of this. uh, What's going to happen here as we return to normal? And the whole pandemic and coming out of Wuhan, China, starts going down the memory hole. What do you think is going to happen when they realize that they can unleash a pandemic across the globe, kill millions of people, and there's not a price for it? There's absolutely no consequence whatsoever. And these are our political leaders helping China get away with it. I mean, this is a perfect case here. Uh, I saw a viral video uh, going on about a person ripping in to Congress. And one of the things he talked about was term limits and how one of the arguments against term limits was, well, experience counts for something. You know, the experience of those who have been in an elected office for a long time now is needed. Now I take a look at that experience. I take a look at the results of things that have come out of Congress, 
how Congress acts and behaves. And I think experience sucks. Experience is not a determination for good leadership if all the experience is based in producing bad results. And now here it is, as we talk about the pandemic in China and the possibility of another pandemic. We got people in office, elected into office, who are spineless cowards, who do not put the American people first, who do not put the country first, but are falling all over themselves to bow down to authoritarian tyrants, to murderous dictators, who are falling all over themselves to sell the country out and basically tell all the other countries they can do whatever they want without consequence. That is not leadership. If you study history and you take a look at how other democracies have fallen to authoritarian tyrants, and you take a look at what's going on in the United States, you are very worried. You are very concerned. Now, we got politicians who are only concerned, only concerned as about being reelected, maintaining their power, and lining their pockets. And their idea of how to stay in elected office is not by bold, competent leadership, but basically just kowtowing to anybody and everybody. I'm, well, let me try and rephrase that. By basically just engaging and everybody gets uh, free stuff if you reelect me which is not leadership. And basically, nobody's held accountable for anything they do against the United States. Can't do anything controversial. You know, just give everybody everything that they want. There's no consequences to free everything. We have seen this before in how democracies failed. When politicians become corrupt, they do not put the country first. They only put the maintaining of their own power first. And the subject at hand here is, if there's nobody on Capitol Hill, are those who are in the legislative or the executive branch, unwilling to hold China accountable for COVID-19, and is basically looking the other way, telling us the same crap they told us when they said, don't worry about COVID-19, as another potential pandemic is about to break, that should only serve as further evidence that, one, we need term limits to get these people out of here because there is an advantage to incumbency. There's a reason why Almost everybody hates the legislative branch, you know, the members of the House, the members of the Senate, and so forth. And yet the incumbents keep getting reelected because the system is rigged. It is rigged in favor of the incumbent to make it very hard to unseat them, especially in the way the funding rules and laws are put into place. But I'm just shocked that another virus mutating from animal to human for a potential pandemic yet again, so close as we are just now getting out of the last pandemic, and it's not getting much cover. It's not getting through the media censorship. Instead, we're just hearing the same don't worry comments as we did when COVID first started. We just need to end any and all business with China, period until they straighten out and prove themselves to be trustworthy. Okay, enough about that. Let's go ahead and move on. So yesterday, I had gone off and I had talked about a story in which parents were waking up to the public school system and taking a look at what was being taught to their kids. And they were surprised about their kids being taught porn literacy and uh, masturbation. They were shocked and they were speaking up outrage. Now, It's not just the public school systems in which this is a problem. 
It turns out that if you look at all left-wing organizations, bureaucracies, and so forth, that the Democrats being in charge, the left, the authoritarians, the hateful racists, and so forth, which is what left-wing politics is all about, overbearing authoritarian government, big brother. Well, it turns out they're all bad. They're all corrupt. They're all horrible. I mean, it, it is amazing when you go off and you take a look at these bureaucracies and government institutions that they put some of the most horrific people in charge of committees designed to protect people. It's amazing. And the problem isn't just here in the United States. The problem is all left-wing countries throughout the world are horrible. And where is the worst place? Where is the biggest cesspool of corruption, of snakes, of the collection of some of the world's worst people? Now, some of you may go off and think, hmm, Washington, D.C., the politician. No, no, no. They're only the second worst collection of people known, well, in the United States. Of course, they are the worst. But when we go off and we take a look at it, have you ever seen the U.N.? The U.N. Now, here's a concept that on paper sounds really good, but in practice, being staffed with people from a whole bunch of different countries especially some of the worst countries in the world, has turned into one of the worst places in the world. So here it is. I have an article here that I saw uh, from Red State. The UN's latest move, children in porn will have you calling for its end. Right? That, that's the name of the article here. Right? And so the UN is pushing for child pornography, or at least for the child viewing of pornography. Right? Now, Remember, here is an institution that put Iran on their Women's Rights Commission. Iran on the Women's Rights Commission put the Venezuelan dictator, Nicolas Maduro, on their Human Rights Council. These things don't go together. Shouldn't you have at least some sort of respect for women before you're on the Women's Rights Commission or have some respect for human rights before you're put on the Human Rights Council? The UN doesn't think that that is a requirement. So anyways, UNICEF comes out and says any effort to block children from accessing pornography online might infringe on their human right. How? How? First off, please explain to me how the viewing of pornography is a human right and that children have that human right. You notice how they just automatically declare anything that they want to do is somehow a human rights issue, that if they want to push for something that is way out there, that would horrify the morality of average people, they go out there with the claim that it's a human right. Now, what is a human right? Well, a human right is the basic, such as life and liberty, right? That is a human right. How is pornography a human right? They, they're never asked to actually explain it. They're never asked. They just declare this is a human right. You know, uh, having taxpayers pay for your health care is a human right. Children accessing pornography is a human right. Open borders is somehow a human right. They just want to go off and just push that their entire ideology, everything that they want, is not up for debate. They just want to declare it a human right. Therefore, it's not debatable, and you must go along with it, or you're trying to violate someone's human right. It's a way to shut down debate, and it's a way to get around 
laws because there are international standards on human rights or for respect for human rights. So if you just declare everything that you want to do to be a human right, then boom, the laws don't apply. International sovereignty doesn't apply. It's a human right. Now, they're never asked to actually explain how, where do they come up with that, or anything. They just make the declaration and you're supposed to go along with it. After all, these are authoritative bodies. And what's worse is we here in the United States, although we're not the only country, we're the biggest country, at least financially, that are giving money to these degenerates. And it's absolutely disgusting to me. No taxpayer should be funding an organization that promotes the sexual abuse of children. Hey, can we at least agree on that? That, hey, if you're engaged in the promotion of sexually abusing children, that maybe the United States should not be funding them? Is it, can we? Can we agree on that? Now, the article goes on to read, uh, former President Donald Trump, while not completely divor divorcing from the United Nations, had pulled us out of the Human Rights Council and lowered the payments being made to these various sub-entities. However, Joe Biden is back in full force to shovel cash their way, just as he has done with sending payments to the Palestinians again. So here is another situation where President Trump looked at them and go, yeah, you're a failed institution. We're not going to go along with this crap. We're pulling out of all of this, and we're not going to financially contribute to this garbage. And here comes Joe Biden saying, hey, you know, there is no horrible thing we will not fund. You know, and just like he restores funding to the Palestinians, who then use that money to engage in terrorist attacks on Israel, Joe Biden goes out there and rejoins these UN subcommittees and councils and starts reflowing all the money to them. And what's one of the first things that they do? Promoting pornography to children and declaiming it a human right. And we know what's next. Once you view pornography, the viewing of it, accessing it as a human right for children, the next step is child porn stars, right? I mean, after all, if viewing it is a human right, then wouldn't engaging it be a human right as well? That children have a right to then participate in the creation of porn, child pornography? That is the next step, and that is where the UN wants to lead us, because child pornography in certain countries is kind of a big business. In fact, if you take a look at, well, some countries, they marry off children rather young, 11, 12, and 13-year-old girls being sold off into marriage. I mean, we, we can debate about that. I mean, I guess there's some cultural things, and I guess it wasn't too many, you know, centuries ago before the, I, you know, since the idea that women being married off at 14 and 15 was a common practice, you know, get them while they're young. But, you know, we have since, you know, evolved and realized that, you know, more development is needed, you know, being able to grow older. And once you get from child pornography, accessing or accessing pornography as a human right, and then it's not that much of a leap, it's just a very small step to child pornography, what will that do? That will increase the business of sex traffic, especially child sex traffic, who will then go off and try and capture, kidnap, and so forth children to engage in pornography, to force them into sex work, film it, and then try to make money off it. I mean, pornography is already a big business. You know, I'm not knocking pornography itself. You know, if you're an adult and you want to watch pornography of other adults, 
hey, fine, to each their own. You know, I'm not going to condemn you. If you're promoting child pornography or children accessing pornography, then I will judge you. But when we take a look at this and we take the very small leap from viewing to engaging in it, and then we can see from there that what's going to happen is the sex traffickers, you know, who may decide, hey, you know, kidnapping children just becomes a lot more profitable when you can film and distribute them engaged in activities to pedophiles. And the idea that the United States would provide in any way any funding to an organization that promotes this is disgusting. And it goes off and shows a complete and total lack of moral leadership. And when we take a look at the jump, you know, the very small step from viewing it as a human right to engaging in it as a human right, and kids start getting kidnapped by sex traffickers who force them to perform in these videos, who will be the number one victim? Do you think it's going to be a lot of small boys, by and large, being kidnapped and forced to perform in these videos? Or do you think it's going to be women, young girls? I don't think it takes that much research. I don't think it takes much intelligence to realize that it's going to be most harmful to young girls. Now, when we go off and we also take a look at not just the UN, but the schools, who are going off and promoting the idea, you know, that, you know, kids as young as first grade should learn about masturbation. And when they get to middle school and high school, that they should be viewing porn for porn literacy, that that is a good idea. No one's going to go out there. What makes you think that's a good idea? I mean, seriously, have you looked at, I'm sure most of us have at one point in our life, whether as young, curious teenagers, or maybe as adults from time to time, just if for nothing else, out of pure curiosity, right? Have you looked at it? Does And if you have, ask yourself, does any of that seem realistic to you? Or does it seem like it is harmful, demeaning, and all of that to women? That if you try to use that as your basis for learning what and how to do something with your partner, do you think that's going to go over very well? I mean, women, women out there in the audience, as you're listening to this, if you've ever watched any type of pornography, can you honestly go out there and say, yes, I wish a guy would do that to me? Or are you going off and going, God, I hope no one ever does that to me. And I'm sure women can tell which guys have learned from pornography, have developed their habits from pornography and what they do, and the guys who haven't. And I'm sure I know which ones they probably prefer. It is just, uh, what is this world coming to? What is this world coming to? Well, when you think about it, the complete demoralization of not just the country, but the entire world. Is this the type of world we want to live in where children are, you know, accessing online pornography and parents aren't allowed to do anything to stop it, put in any parental controls or anything because it is somehow declared a human right? Is that where we want to go? Or do we want to say, screw the UN, pull out completely, defund them, and, and recognize them as the failed institution that they are? I mean, we can't do that to the school. I, I understand that. We need the public education system. So we do need to go off and reform that public education system. But I don't think there's any reforming of the United Nations that is possible. And as such, I think we just need to recognize it's a failed institution run by a bunch of garbage people 
from countries that have no morals or respect for human rights, which is another interesting thing here. They're declaring pornography as a human right. And the countries that are on these, that are part of these groups, part of the UN that would be promoting this, what are their human rights record? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and move on a little bit here. I mean, this next thing that I want to cover is really short. And it goes about the media manipulation and how the Democrats are able to use their past crimes and atrocities as justification for the future crimes and uh, atrocities that they are setting up. It's really kind of amazing and how the media helps them with that. So remember last year, during all those riots, claimed to be in the name of George Floyd, how a church was burnt down, right? And uh, it was in uh, D.C. Uh, I forget what uh, church it was. It was uh, something that historically presidents uh, would go to. But in any event, Black Lives Matter and Antifa went through and burnt down the church. Well, the media has decided that they want to do a story, you know, one year later. And when you read the article and when you see the cover, you notice that there is something missing about it. So they go off and they start interviewing about the damages that were caused, the rebuilding efforts, and you know where they are, when they might be fully restored. And they go off and they talk about how the church was attacked, you know, the fires that burned them down. But the one thing that was missing from the coverage was who did it? Who burnt it down? Who attacked the church? Why? Because we know who did it. It was Black Lives Matter and Antifa. The media supports it, Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So they want to cover the damage that was done, the fire, the arson, the domestic acts of terrorism, without talking about who actually did the burning. And this is what the Democrats do. And this is how things go down the memory hole. People forget who did what because the media omit the crucial and important details out of their coverage. So they go off and they do this interview. They go off and they, you know, write their articles. They leave out who attacked the church, right, in the coverage. And then they'll go off and they'll start talking about the violence, hate crimes, and so forth, and then try to use that to justify policies and legislation that they're trying to go off and write that would strip us more of a, a, a way from our rights and freedom. I mean, it's just like with what the Democrats do when they talk about slavery. They'll go off and they'll try to blame the country at whole. They leave out which political party was the party of slavery, segregation, KKK, and who stood against the civil rights movement. They'll talk about those events, but they won't talk about what political party, who the backers, who the supporters, who are those that engaged in that, because it was them. But they omit those facts as they go off and use that, those events to justify basically continuing doing those events. I mean, they talk about the horrors of segregation, and then you look at college campuses where they are promoting segregation, but they're promoting it on the idea of helping minorities feel safe. It's the same thing. It's the same segregation. You know, but they'll use the, what the Democrats did in the past, Jim Crow laws and the KKK, to justify segregation today and promote it as for the Democrats. So it, it's just amazing how they keep getting away with it. the lies of omission. But it's just how they're able to use their past atrocity, omit and avoid responsibility for it, and then use those atrocities 
as examples for why they need to do more of what led to those atrocities. It's basically saying that, hey, you know, we robbed a store. And you know what? We think robbing is wrong. So we're going to introduce this legislation to target store owners who kill robbers and block robbers. It's like, wait, what? What's the logic in that? Exactly. There is no logic, which explains the Democrat Party. And everything, everything the Democrats do, everything the media does is on purpose. And it's not that the policies end in disaster unintentionally. It is by design. And if you go through and you take a look at the Democrat Party and you listen to them, they can't help it because of their massive ego and their need to be praised, but to give away what the strategy is. And they'll always end up saying the quiet parts out loud. So here's another article from the Red State. Uh, the Democrats completely give away the game and, uh, for and quasi-genocidal Memorial Day post. And so here it is from the Red State. A Democrat decided to dabble in some kind of quasi-genocidal call to replace Republicans so the country can turn into a utopian dream. Oh, yes. If we just implement all the policies that basically destroyed other democracies, that that will somehow usher in utopia in the United States. We just If it just wasn't for the Republicans, an all-powerful authoritarian government would create paradise. Mm-hmm. And so a tweet goes out and it says, fact, if every single Republican voter magically disappeared tonight, in 10 years, the U.S. would have the best education in the world, most affordable quality health care in the world, most prosperous middle class, etc. Every Dem vote makes one of theirs disappear. Now, first off, that is not a fact. In fact, if we take a look at examples from around the world, you would find out that if Democrats or excuse me, if Republicans magically disappeared and it was all Democrats, 100%, that this would end up becoming a socialist hellhole, a failed country with people en masse dying in the streets of starvation. All you have to do is look at every other country in which the Democrats were able to get complete and total domination, right? So their fact is actually proven fiction. Now, what is truly ironic about this is that when Republicans point out that Democrats seek to replace traditionally conservative voters via artificially boosted demographic shifts, specifically with immigration, they get called racist. Hmm. So Republicans go out there and they point out that the Democrats' whole immigration policy is, and their whole open border policy, is about importing voters from around the world to replace American citizens to replace the current electorate, because the current electorate does not vote for the Democrats, at least nowhere near the numbers that the Democrats need to be able to have total domination of the country. In fact, the Democrats have to engage in absurd levels of cheating at this point in order to be able to maintain power in elected office, because people by and large are getting sick of the Democrats, their failed policies, their hatred, the violence, and so on. People are getting sick of it. And you got people leaving the Democrat Party. So the Democrat Party has to engage in fraud in order to be able to continue to get elected and be able to engage in fraud to hold on to power in places and pockets of the country that they have total control. But that level of fraud is not getting them the results it used to, just like calling everybody racist, is not getting them the results that they are used to. And so if politicians 
can't get elected with the current electorate. Change the electorate. You know, we, it's a situation where instead of the people choosing their elected representatives, it's the elected representatives choosing their constituents. This is anti-democracy. And even though the left wants to go out there and call everyone racist, if we try to block, prevent, or speak out against their attempts to artificially change the demographics of the United States for the sole purpose of importing voters for themselves, they want to call us racist for it. But yet, if you spend time just letting them talk, they'll actually admit that that's exactly what they want to do. And as they do it, it doesn't seem to matter that how they're going about it is illegal in direct violation of the statutes and laws passed by Congress. DACA is completely illegal. It's an illegal program enacted by the executive branch under Obama. It is unconstitutional. And yet the Democrats have decided we're just going to do it anyway in order to be able to have more voters to keep people in the country so that they can go off and get their amnesty plan pushed through, to keep them in the country long enough for them to be able to one day have enough political power to pass amnesty, and then game over. No more democracy. No more constitution. It's the socialist nightmare that they keep trying to claim is somehow a utopian dream. It's game over. And same thing with open borders. Catch and release. Catch and release is illegal under federal law. And yet they keep doing it. They keep engaging in it because they have an open borders policy. And therefore, they've decided that they're going to ignore the laws, violate the laws, because the end game here is to turn them all into voters so that the Democrats can hold on to power. And that every illegal immigrant, everybody that they import into the country is being screened when the Democrats are in charge for their political ideology, just like they do with their hiring practices at the schools and universities and what is starting to creep its way into business and government employment. They're screening for political ideology so that they can ensure that the people that they are bringing into the country as they try to manufacture a demographic shift are those who are politically aligned with the Democrats. And they are going through to just make sure that only those people get admitted into the country because as they admit and give away, that every Democrat voter that they can bring in makes a Republican vote disappear. It neutralizes a Republican vote. That's the whole game, people. And they're not even hiding it anymore. They actually think it's a campaign agenda, a campaign platform. Vote for us. And if you manage to get us into office just barely enough, we'll make sure that we import voters and we'll change all the laws to ensure that there, that no matter what, that there isn't any free and fair elections ever again, that we will forever be in power, and then we'll enact all the great policies of Venezuela. And now, as anybody with a half a brain knows, Black Lives Matter is not about helping the black community. They are not an organization designed to lift up or promote social justice. They are a terrorist organization promoting Marxism and anti-Semitism. And yet somehow this organization has been able to go global with countries around the world promoting Black Lives Matter, the political group, the political agenda, without being able to question them or analyze their actions. And any attempt to do so is 
racist, right? So it's interesting here because if you go through and you take a look at Black Lives Matter, you find some really, truly disgusting thing, some very horrifying statements coming out of them. So here it is, a, a video of, from Black Lives Matter's co-founder uh, participating in a roundtable uh, discussion. In that discussion, called for the end of Israel. Now, hey, Europe, Europe, hello. Uh, wasn't there uh, some type of world war centered around wanting to stop the genocide of the Jews? And, uh, you know, we engaged in a bloody battle in order to protect the Jewish people and free them from death camps and so. And yet now you're going out there and promoting an organization, and the United States included, that is calling for the end of Israel the end of the Jewish state, the end of the Jewish people? Hmm, how soon we forget the lessons of the past. So what had happened here is, first off, they called for the support of the Palestinians, you know, those terrorists that keep attacking the Jews, whose only goal is to wipe Israel off the map completely, to kill every Jew in existence. Yeah, they, they call for supporting the Palestinians and Hamas you know, by definition. Hmm, genocide. That's probably not something I would openly support. You know, just putting that out there, not something that I would openly support. I mean, if you're calling to complete the agenda that Hitler had, probably should think twice before thinking about supporting them. Yep. And, it's, and of course, it's no surprise that one terrorist, violent terrorist organization, would go out there and openly support another violent terrorist organization. And it, Black Lives Matter is openly hateful and racist organization that is just using the black community, the black identity, and the atrocities that the left engaged in in the past in order to gain political power and just line their own pocket. And this whole trying to defend the organization because, well, they call themselves Black Lives Matter. If you don't agree with them, then you don't think Black Lives Matter and you're a racist. Have you actually analyzed what the results have been? You know, just beyond the increase in violence, just beyond the murders and arson and all of that, just beyond that, have you ever actually taken a moment here to analyze the statements that are coming out? So recently, we there was an anniversary, a hundred-year anniversary of an atrocity of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, and it is shocking and disgusting what we saw at these rallies the promotion of hate, the promotion of genocide coming out and all feeling like they're justified, that genocide should be engaged in, you know, to combat white supremacy is the argument, you know? And so from the right scoop, uh, and the article is entitled, Black People Will Kill Everything White in Sight, shocking footage from National Black Power Convention. You know, a black power group marched and ranted about killing white people to avenge what happened a hundred years ago. Hmm. Killing people who didn't do anything to avenge a massacre over a, you know, a century ago now. Hmm. You know, you're not going to create peace with an eye for an eye. That just makes the world go blind. But also, we are not the same people. We have done a lot. We have been able to eradicate racism, for the most part, and white supremacy and all of that. And now we're seeing where racism, hate, is popping up now as a result of Black Lives Matter. 
And so the article goes on to read, uh, reporting uh, what the National Black Power Convention attendees were saying. We're pushing death to white supremacy, death to capitalism, death to imperialism, and death to fascism. Now, first of all, this doesn't make sense here because capitalism is the opposite of fascism. You know, free market, limited government is the opposite of authoritarian, government-controlled fascism. You know, so, I mean, you, you want to get rid of freedom and oppression at the same time? I mean, I'm not sure how you get both sides of that, but hey, to them, it sounds good. And how does getting rid of capitalism help anybody? Capitalism has been the driving force of economic development, has been the driving force between the prosperity where even the poorest among us live better than even the richest in the world just 100 years ago. Hmm. Anyways, it goes on. We're pushing an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a head for a head, and a life for a life. Yeah, that means everybody's going to be blind, toothless, headless, and dead. That's the end result there. Because white supremacists bust us upside the head and drug us over here to pick cotton so they can get rich, so they can get wealthy. And see, not only is this a result of all the promotion of hate and racism coming out of Black Lives Matter, but it's also because these people don't have a damn clue about history. White supremacists didn't go bust them upside the head and drag them here. First of all, slavery was a worldwide norm for thousands of years. Right? Let, let's acknowledge that. For thousands of years, that was the worldwide norm. Every race has been enslaved by members of every other race. Right? And what happened in Africa? It was one African tribe going after another African tribe. Those they did not kill, they took as prisoners, marched them to the seaport, and then sold them as slaves, marketed them as slaves, and sold them. It was one African tribe doing that to another African tribe. And with slavery being the worldwide norm, those who were at the ports buying slaves, they didn't ask questions about whether they were born slaves or how they came to be slaves. They took a look at it as merchandise, a product that a country or that people in the country was selling to other people of other countries. And the United States, when you actually take a look at the numbers, had only a minor role when it came to slavery. We weren't even the biggest purchasers of slaves. Most of the slaves didn't even come to the United States. When you take a look at it, maybe about 10 to 15 percent of the of the slaves that the African people were selling of their own countrymen, only about 10 to 15% of that actually went to the United States. So the flip side of saying that is about 85 to 90% was going to everywhere else in the world. And the United States, out of those who received the slaves, received some of the lowest numbers of slaves. You have South American countries and Middle American countries that received far more slaves than the United States. You see that with Asian countries and you know so forth, right? They all they all received more, but for some reason America is demonized. The United States is demonized the most for slavery even though we had the smallest role in it. And when you bring that up and you ask, "Well, why aren't you outraged by all these other countries that engaged in it?" They have no answer. They're only focused on the United States, which had the smallest plot. I mean, that doesn't mean it wasn't horrible. That's not to downplay that it was an evil enterprise, but it wasn't 
you know, Europeans going over, busting them upside the head and dragging them to the United States. You know, the, the, their ignorance over what actually happened helps to fuel the hate. This is why the left has to lie and rewrite history. And these mostly through lies of omission, you know, leaving out key details, leaving out key facts. And the United States was the, one of the first countries to actually outlaw slavery. Yes, there was another country, one country that beat us to it, but that country was about the size of what? One state. So, so if you go by, you know, state, then we were the first, what? First 15, the first 20 that managed to outlaw slavery. You know? And we led the effort to pretty much eliminate slavery worldwide. You never get any credit for that. It's always about the United States demonizing us as if we're the ones that invented slavery or that we had a major role in it. But the lies of omission and then the revisionist, you know, and the exaggeration, you know, is only is used in order to fuel the current level of hate that we are seeing as a result of Black Lives Matter. Okay. So they go off and also say, once they are buried, we must bury them again, dig them up, and kill them again. Another speaker took the megaphone and said, black people will kill everything white in sight because of all what you've done to us. What you have done in the last are done in the 6,000 year span, killing 600 million people or a million of us in 408 years. Um, I don't know how to tell you this, but the United States is not that old. The United States is not that old. I mean, we're not even 300 years old. We're not even half as old as that 600-year time span that you're giving us. Yeah. Hmm. Kind of need to look into it. You know, uh, how old is the United States? Hmm. Now, maybe they're going off and they're trying to say, you know, globally. Maybe they're just saying something about globally, which, you know, kind of, you know, makes it confusing about how they were talking about being dragged specifically here. And you're talking about white. What about, I don't know, being upset that Africa, you know, the country of your ancestors are the ones that rounded you up and sold you into slavery to begin with? Any any outrage about that? Any being upset about that in any way, shape, or form? Or what about the, you know, being uh, some of your ancestors being enslaved in Africa to other Africans? Any outrage, any mention, any outrage about that? Or of or in Asian countries? or in Hispanic countries, or anything else. You notice how they're only focused on this as if, as, as if they're going off and saying, well, you know, it was okay for Asian countries. It was okay for Hispanic countries to do this. It was okay for their own country to do this, to enslave their people. We're only upset about uh, the white man's involvement. You know, everybody else, it was fine for them to do it. But, you know, we're only upset about the white man. Hmm. You know, it seems like their outrage is less about what happened and more about and more specifically targeted about who happened, which, you know, I have no problems going out and saying, you know, it was a you know moral stain and an atrocity on everybody who did it. But their focus, their rage is narrowly focused, almost as if they don't really have much of a clue about what actually happened, as if information is purposely withheld from them in order to promote hate, rage, and, and, and genocidal thoughts towards 
a specific target, regardless of the level of involvement. Hmm. Just a thought here. Just a thought. You know, I was going off and just wanted to, you know, point out how how their rage about being upset is very selective, not by whether or not a group engaged in it, but the color of the skin of the groups that engaged in it. And that certain skin colors get a complete pass. It's also frightening that the bastardization of history has been so effectively used to promote hatred and intolerance that you got groups openly calling for genocide. And the left wing celebrates them, wants to promote them, wants to fund them, and the media doesn't want you to know what it is they're really out there promoting. All right, so that's it uh, for this episode. I'd like to thank you so much for listening in. Hey, you know the drill. If this is your first time listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Leave me a rating and review and share this around social media on actual platforms that allow you to. I'd be surprised if Facebook and Twitter still allows it, but hey, you never know. So thank you so much, and I will be back again soon.